Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlund. I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. Our guest today is Megan O'Neill. And Dr. O'Neill studies vulnerable populations in America, particularly focused on racial and economic inequality and how these mechanisms impact health and well-being. She conducts evidence-based research to make for better public policy. Dr. O'Neill holds an MA in quantitative methods from Columbia University and a PhD in sociology from Sunny Albany as a research faculty at the University of Michigan. Funded by the National Science Foundation, she created and implemented the Removing Barriers Experiment in Opioid Treatment Centers. She is the first generation in her family to attend college and is the granddaughter, daughter, and sister of wartime U.S. veterans. And she herself has been impacted by premature mortality associated with alcohol and drug misuse. And this drives her passion for informing better public policy for this vulnerable population. So Megan is going to talk about her experiment, a randomized controlled trial, removing barriers to recovery, community partnering for innovative solutions to the opioid crisis. It is really amazing what Megan was able to accomplish with her team to put this study together and to really be able to see the impact of how we can help this vulnerable population get recovery. I could really feel Megan's passion for this work, that it touches her deeply and her heart is really in it to help all of these individuals who are struggling with substance use disorder. So I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. And if you're getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. I do read them. They mean a lot to me. Thank you so much for all the people that have taken the time to do that. It really does help the Addicted Mind podcast get found and I really appreciate it. All right, everyone, stay tuned for this episode. I want to welcome Megan O'Neill to the Addicted Mind podcast. Welcome, Megan. I'm excited that you're here. We're going to talk a lot about the research you're doing on addiction and addiction treatment. But first, let's just have you introduce yourself. Tell us a little about you and why this work is important to you. Thanks for having me, Dwayne. 
I am just really excited to be here. I am a research investigator at University of Michigan, where I've been conducting research for about five years, a couple years with Michigan Law School and also with the Institute for Social Research. And I'm really focused on inequality in America and public policy and looking at vulnerable populations. And the past few years really been focused on um, people who use drugs and the circumstances that they're dealing with institutionally, whether that be healthcare, justice system, housing market, sort of the barriers and institutional issues that they face in trying to enter recovery and move on with their lives. And as somebody who's really interested in in public policy, there's something to keep in mind with great American public policy and that it often doesn't reach the people who need it most. And so throughout the past few years, I came across some opportunities where I felt that I was able to connect with people who really needed these services and sort of link them up with these amazing opportunities that were publicly available that simply people didn't know how to access. And so uh, really excited to to share more about that and get into the nitty gritty of the research and, and why it matters and why I think people should care about it from a public facing standpoint as, you know, not just academics like myself, but also policymakers and clinicians and community members who are concerned about the opioid crisis and and the burgeoning addiction issues we have in America. So yeah, happy to talk about that and and just know I, I'm also moving in a couple of weeks to Ohio State and going to be working with their Drug Enforcement and Policy Unit at the Ohio State Law School. So excited about that. Wow, that's a lot. So what motivated you to get into this field? Because these are very specific issues that that you see and it sounds like there's a real passion to to dig into this piece of you know how, how do we help people how do we help these vulnerable populations that are stuck sure well i studied uh, sociology when i was in school i was a uh, double major with special education and sociology I was always very interested in vulnerable populations and while i was studying sociology it became just it just sort of clicked with me we had a class that was taught by a retired police detective and i just found crime fascinating especially coming from a working class neighborhood just outside of new york city where a lot of people's family members including my own had been incarcerated i grew up with a household member who was incarcerated on on felony charges began you know their incarceration stints when they were juvenile and this is something that really impacted my life growing up is is to sort of see the system from that standpoint of a family member of someone who was visiting prisons and got to see firsthand, I guess I would say, or secondhand, you know, as the family member, not the individual who's incarcerated, but as someone who, as a child, I grew up, you know, visiting prisons and looking around and seeing the very blatant, obvious racial disparities, for example, and then economic disparities. So the people waiting in line to see their family were in large part poor Americans, right? And more often than not, they were people of color. And so this, these sort of issues that were plaguing our system were very apparent to me as a young person, probably, you know, sooner than they would have been for other folks. And then as a sociologist, I learned to study 
things like demography and looking at neighborhoods, right? And if you live in this neighborhood, your likelihood of being picked up by the cops is, is X amount times what it would be in this other neighborhood, right? And then if you grew up in, in this region of the country, in this specific community, your likelihood of, of completing college is so much greater than someone who went to school in that community. And so looking at things like that demographers look at and trying to take, you know, communities, neighborhoods, households, and break it all down and see like where are the paths to prison where does this pipeline begin why are the people who are in prison you know how did they get there and why are they there and not the people in the other neighborhoods and not the people in the other households and so I really tried to understand and take it all in and and dissect it and figure out you know what can I take from my academic teachings and everything I've learned about public policy and uh, sort of social policy, what can I do to better serve the people where I came from, whether it be immigrant community or just a, a very you know diverse neighborhood? How can we better serve these people so that they can move on and support their children and we can have intergenerational mobility instead of what was really interesting to me as a kid is I saw this path where men went into these labor positions that were often unionized. And although they were working poor, they were able to support a family along with a spouse and sometimes multi-generational. So grandparents may be in the household contributing and, and sort of working their way up. And what was the American dream and the hopes of, of hopefully starting a better life for, and their children would have a better life. But once young men became incarcerated in the neighborhood and people were being incarcerated at younger ages for more severe drug charges and things of this nature, like the Rockefeller drug laws we saw in New York, where people had a certain amount of crack cocaine on them and would go away for a mandatory minimum of so many years. What happened is that these young men were going to prison when they were so young, they would come out and they were no longer eligible for employment in the industries where their fathers had worked. And so in the past few decades, I've seen this massive fallout where the primary uh, bread earner and a lot of these families is no longer employable, right? And so we have this whole underground economy and we have a lot of people who are sort of forced into indigence and unable to form families and sort of like not have the capital to get a mortgage, not be able, not to have the stability to get married. And, and so you, you see this sort of compounding issues surrounding poverty and discrimination. And it's it's very concerning to me because I see people like in my own family, in my own community who are unable to support their household and make their children's lives better than their own, which was all, you know, everybody's American dream is to move forward and, and leave something better for your family. And so this very much I see is a policy failure. And I'm seeing that incarcerating young men for some of the things that they're being incarcerated for on these very, very serious charges is it's creating these sort of catastrophic community based failures where we have people coming out under government supervision where they are obligated to test for drugs right. daily, right? And maybe the drug testing center is 40 minutes from their house and they also don't have a license because they've been incarcerated. Maybe right. their license is suspended. And so how do they get to the drug testing? And then how do they pay for the drug testing? And so also, I was just going to say that they, they also become invisible 
to all of this. Like it's not oh, yeah. seen. And so their struggle is just put upon them in a way that minimizes the real hurdles that they have to overcome. Just from my own experience, when I was working in this field, I worked in, um, it was in California in the Prop 36 program, which was a mandated program for drug offenders to do that in lieu of prison time. And I mean, my experience, like it was, it almost felt impossible for them to complete this course with all the barriers that they faced. It was just like, it was so, it wasn't about recovery to me in some ways. That is exactly what I'm talking about. And and so my interest as, as a scholar is really to better serve the people who need it with evidence-based policies and influence the policy field such that we are not making policies that are well-intentioned, but they in practice fail, right? We want policies that Yes, you have this well intention of keeping, you know, the household drug free. Great. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. However, if it means that this person is going to lose their job because the time of the appointments interfere with nine to five when they have to work, if it means that they're not able to be in the household with their children and then not involved in their, their family's day to day and have those social relationships and familiar relationships that support recovery at sometimes I see a lot in my experience in field work and clinical work that these somewhat, you know, seemingly well-intentioned policies are undermining the actual structures that support recovery. And so what we're seeing is really a revolving prison door where a lot of these folks, more often men, but also women, and this impacts everyone, not in not any, you know, not just white folks, not just black folks, this impacts all Americans who come through a justice system. The burden of oversight from the government is so high in people's individual lives that it ends up ultimately, we see often undermining recovery. And so really what I, what I tried to do with my experiment, removing barriers to recovery was to work directly with community-based organizations who are serving the community well, right. And, and serving very vulnerable community members extremely well. And their success rates, you know, are pretty good in the sense that they are meeting people where they're at and giving them what they need, right? So if they need help finding, getting their license back, for example, they have recovery support specialists. And so policymakers don't think about these nitty gritty things. They think, you know, have this individual show up on this date and meet with their parole officer and that's it. No questions asked. But for the individual who's been incarcerated and does not have access to transportation and perhaps is unemployed or underemployed, these are these are really high burdens that actually in themselves create a pathway back into incarceration because they're unable to to comply. So uh, one, one of the questions that's coming up for me is like, how did you organize this this study? I mean, it just seems so huge. One of the things that I've seen in that work when I w- was doing a lot of that work was like all these different agencies working in different directions and and trying to coordinate that kind of partnership it was just really, really difficult. So the first thing I'm like thinking is like, how did you organize this and and do this study so that these partnering organizations could kind of come together and, and figure that out? That's a great question. Uh, it took 
a lot of time and a lot of energy and I was happy to do it. And I really sort of just threw myself into it. And I had a traditional postdoctoral fellowship offer when I was graduating with my PhD, which would have led me in a different direction and it would have provided more stable employment at the time. And I chose instead to, to find my own research lab, basically, to pursue this line of research because I was passionate about it, even though it would potentially be quite a bit of work or more work than the more obvious option for me to take. And so I just basically threw myself into it and I made relationships and fostered relationships in the community. And I asked a lot of I asked for a lot of help. I asked for help from senior faculty members. I asked for help from community members, community organizations. I cold called a lot of people in a lot of places. And I I very much immersed myself in the local recovery community to find out who the movers and shakers were and who I needed to listen to, who I needed to speak to and ask for help. And my goal was essentially to help provide some publicly available services directly to people in treatment centers. And specifically, what we provide as part of my experiment is online court resources. So there's essentially a website with portals to different courthouses. The judges on the other end will see the communication and individuals can communicate with the court without actually going to court. And this is a major hurdle for people who are on the lower end of the income spectrum who come into recovery, sometimes having one, two, three or more criminal arrest warrants or bench warrants, failure to appear warrants and, you know, a warrant meaning you're to be incarcerated, right? You're wanted for arrest. And so... For someone coming into recovery, this is a massive hurdle to overcome to start their life. And I found out, you know, who do I need to speak to to bring this resource to the treatment centers? And I did that by, like I said, really getting involved. So I participated in sobriety court softball games, for example. I went to picnics with clinicians and people in recovery where it was a you know recovery friendly events I went to different treatment centers and spoke with clinical directors and I sent letters and I spoke to different judicial officers I had meetings with judges and I let them know hey would you like to clear some of the warrants that you have open in your community because I can do it with people who you otherwise are largely not going to be in touch with, not unless they're arrested. And so let's bring these people in to form some sort of a resolution that's agreeable on both sides. And judges were pretty receptive. I mean, judges have very high docket, long dockets, and they're really busy. And, you know, they they want to get through the paperwork. And if I can help get some of their, what they call like repeat offenders, the people who are in week after week, month after month, year after year, some of these folks have been coming in before this one judge. If it's an addiction issue, this person may have been before this judge a dozen times, right? And so the judge would love to, you know, sort of get rid of this person and get this person back on their feet, right? Because it makes the judge's life easier. And so I essentially was sort of speaking to the choir here. And I said, you know, look, I I understand, you know, you have 75% of your docket has some sort of substance use issue. And 
I can go directly to the treatment centers who are serving the most marginalized of these folks. So the people who are uninsured, they have no medical insurance or are on Medicaid. So they are means tested and have a very low income, right? And so I can go to them and I can directly provide a tutorial for them to speak to you over this platform and potentially resolve these issues. Are you interested? And I'll tell you, the judges were very interested. The court administrators were very interested and they agreed. We have several courts who agreed to work with us. And so the next couple of years, COVID happened. and, And so things slowed down a little bit. But once the pandemic health issue, the direct issues of being inside the treatment center, They were reduced over time, and we were able to take public health precautions and wear PPE. Myself and my team were able to go into the treatment centers and meet with people and help introduce them to this, you know, publicly available resource that people really just didn't know existed. Right. And it sounds like kind of organizing these systems together so that they can work together and flow together Mm -hmm. in a realistic way recovery modality, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. working with the reality of of how life operates. And I, I know that was a frustration for me in working with this because I would see people come in and, oh my gosh, you know, they have all these legal issues and they really, really wanted to be clean and they really, really wanted recovery. I had no doubt about that, you know, because I had in-depth conversations with them about it. yet. Once again, these kind of things would come up and it would just sabotage the whole process of recovery. And then once again, Mm -hmm. you know, many of these people would end up back in prison over something to me in my mind was like, why are that's just insane that they're back in prison. They shouldn't be there for that offense, in my opinion. But, you know, it was kind of crazy. They didn't need to be there. And it was heartbreaking to see it. People with justice system involvement and substance use, misuse issues often come before the court with very high levels of supervision, as I mentioned. And supervision is another way to say probation or parole. And in those cases, they have a lot of check-ins with parole and probation officers. They have meetings. They have, they might have a tether, so like an ankle right. bracelet. Yeah location monitoring. They may have restrictions on who they speak with and who they associate with. And, you know, these these sort of hurdles can be difficult, if not impossible for people, for some people who have really limited resources. And so, you know, if your parole terms say that you can't associate with anyone with a felony record, but your family has felony records, where do you live, right? It's, you know, there's there's so many hurdles here for people who are trying to achieve recovery and abstain from substances or reduce their, their substance use. So I'm finding that a lot of people are reincarcerated on these technical terms of their parole or probation without actually having committed a new crime. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's so hard. When when you were working with this and pulling everybody together, it sounds like that it was a really positive response. Like people really wanted to do that. And what was the I guess what I'm trying to get here is that sometimes we're just stuck in the system that exists and we don't know how mm-hmm. to move out of that system. 
And so the system just keeps going along, right? It just keeps flowing mm-hmm. and it doesn't help. What was it like to kind of start to change this system and have these people kind of come together to do that? That's an excellent question, Dwayne. Let me give you an example. One of the court systems who I sat down and discussed this intervention with, I spoke to a judge who told me that another judge in their courthouse does not really use the internet, right? And so she said that anything that comes online for the specific judge, that she would call him in his chambers and and basically break it down over the phone, or she would meet with him in person. And so she said he would be the biggest hurdle to the jurisdiction adopting an online court tool because he simply, this is not something he's he's accustomed to doing. He's been here for several decades. He's not interested in learning now. And she said, I like what you're doing. I see the, the potential benefit for our judicial system and for the community. And she said, I'm going to liaison with him and just make it happen. And so this one individual was you know, very supportive. And so she kind of took one for the team and took on a little bit of extra work so that the other judge who does not use the internet, and this was, you know, her own admitting that this one judge doesn't use the internet, she said, I'm going to take care of it for him. And so we did encounter situations such as that, where it was so new and so different from what had been done for many years that there was, you know, a little bit of hesitancy or having to change behaviors. But it ended up ultimately working, and that jurisdiction did adopt an agreement to work with us and utilize the online core services. Wow. Did you find that people, once they started to do this, that they they were more open to it and more wanting to, 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 to make that happen once they saw these, I guess, all these roadblocks and a different way of doing it? So... Essentially, when the courts came on, I believe they made agreements for about one year with the tech company who had created this software and sold the software platform. And initially, when I spoke with the judges about how the rollout looked on their end and what, you know, has anything really changed and how's it going? Some of the initial feedback I got was very positive and had some unintentional positive ramifications. For example, one of the jurisdictions with a high poverty rate began utilizing online courts to clear warrants. And traditionally, historically, clearing a warrant for someone, an arrest warrant, the person would have to come into the courthouse and bring themselves in upon the warrant. And at that point, sometimes they would be arrested and other times they might just get a court date or some other sort of resolution. This was a practice that entailed a $50, I think it was a $50 warrant clearance fee. Once this online court was established in this jurisdiction, the judge told me that they actually dropped that $50 warrant clearance fee because of the fact that they didn't have any online payment system set up. So once they started using the online court, 
the court recognized, you know, we really don't need this $50 fee from people. So we're just going to stop asking for it because we can actually clear the warrant up. And this benefit to our court and to our community is greater than that $50 we would have gotten if the person cleared the warrant in person. So does that make sense? Yeah, that they were, they saw this because they could see this as a barrier that it didn't really, it didn't really matter to what their ultimate goal was. Exactly. And to be able to like, let go of the system, change it, shift it and be practical about it. One of the questions I have is, as you did this, I, I would imagine this kind of work is so important to people when they're starting to get into recovery, especially early recovery. And why why getting rid of these barriers? I mean, I guess in some ways it's kind of obvious, but in, in a practical sense, why is it so important that we get this right? It's extremely important in early recovery. When people are entering recovery, especially, you know, the folks that we're meeting with in my intervention, my experiment, they're often just a few days sober and they may be fighting an addiction that's been ongoing for years. And so this is a very sensitive and impressionable time, a very vulnerable time where the individual has sort of come to this realization that they've liked to make a lifestyle change or at least try to make a lifestyle change. And if something goes wrong and something becomes untenable, their path back to where they were is is nearby, right? It, it's it, there's risk there, and so for individuals in this in this vulnerable position, we want to basically have as few hurdles and barriers as possible to staying in recovery. So if this means you know this individual is in early recovery and and they're in their first few weeks and they're doing really well, and now it's time for them to submit, let's say they have to submit a job application at whatever point their clinician and them and their team decide, okay, now it's time for you to start thinking about your future. You've been doing well. And that person realizes, well, actually, I can't pass a job background screening because I have some warrants out. For that person, that could be a pivotal time where they say, you know what, forget it. Like, I don't want to go to jail because if I go to jail, that's going to threaten my sobriety. Now, if we can clear the warrant so that that person is more employable and can support themselves, that is a psychological boost and a material boost to their well-being by saying like, look, we've given this person the agency. So they've given themselves the agency, but we've helped them get there so that they can now move forward with their life instead of moving backward, right? So if they've achieved recovery and then they're incarcerated, we know that the clinical treatment in jail is not great. Right. If it's even available, if there's programs available, they're right, not great. Yeah. And it's a really difficult place to try to get and stay sober. Right. I mean, jail is uh, I don't have to tell I'm preaching yeah. to the choir. here. I'm sure that it's not a great place to start your recovery journey and feel um, confident and, and you know great about yourself. So if we can help clear these these hurdles to employment, um, this is huge. And then also, of course, hurdles to housing. So one of the things that we hear people resonating over and over with us is that housing is really difficult for them to find because of their criminal justice and civil justice issues. And again, if if we can help them get on this path to 
um, resolving these issues so that they can pass a screening to get themselves an apartment, that's huge. And when you say civil justice, what do you mean? Uh, So many of the people we're working with in the recovery centers, they have not only histories in the criminal justice space that you can think of, whether that be, you know, misdemeanor larceny, let's say, or uh, a substance related charge in the criminal justice system, but many of them also have civil justice issues. And so these could be fairly minor concerns like a traffic ticket or a parking ticket that go unpaid over time when the, you know possibly they forgot about it they moved they just they didn't pay it and eventually many of these issues turn into arrest warrants bench warrants believe it or not and so what would otherwise be a minor tiny little slap on the wrist for someone who could afford to pay off the ticket you know you pay the ticket you send your check in it's done for some folks this can turn into a massive hurdle where they may be facing jail time because of the outlying issues that occur following the non-payment or following a missed court date. And then in addition to sort of traffic and parking violations, we see other things like we have family court issues, whether that be a child in foster care, a child support enforcement case, or a divorce case, uh, housing, so eviction, Some people might have citations for homelessness, foreclosure. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which people can get entangled in the justice system. And the reason why it really matters for folks in in early recovery, clearing up these barriers, is there are no attorneys provided in civil justice cases the way that, you know, we have a constitutionally authorized Right. Right to counsel in a criminal justice case, but in a civil justice case like an eviction or divorce, we do not have the right to counsel. So for people who are otherwise indigent, they have low or no income. It's very, very difficult to navigate the justice system. And so these fines and fees that accumulate from these civil justice issues and these arrest warrants that accumulate can be barriers that really send people back into their using lifestyle and their previous lifestyle if they just don't feel like they have a way around it. Do you think that you know, like like you, you mentioned the parking ticket and, you know, working in this population, I could see how that could be something that seems small to somebody outside of this area, right? Like, well, it's just a parking ticket. Just pay it, you know, get it done. Uh, but for someone in these in these vulnerable populations, I mean, these are huge barriers that can send people out of their recovery back into into using because it just it like you said it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and there's no there's you know with with the resources they have there's no way for them to be able to take care of this kind of stuff i'm seeing people come into treatment having hundreds of dollars sometimes thousands of dollars that they owe to the government in various sorts of uh, fines and fees and there's A lot written in my field of sociology about government and legal fines and fees. And and it's not just costs associated with the criminal cases, but also these civil cases as well. And one one of the really big ticket items we're finding for a lot of the 
parents in our community, of which at least half, these more than half of our patients in treatment centers that we're uh, working with have children, they have child support cases. And in our state of Michigan, a child support amount that is overdue in a rearage, they call it, once it gets to a certain level, it becomes a felony arrest warrant in Michigan or can become a felony. It's a, it's a felony charge for being behind on your child support. And so for people in recovery who may have lost their employment because of, you know, related to their addiction and perhaps they lost their housing and so they weren't getting letters and, you know, maybe they didn't update their address timely. These are all sorts of violations of the child custody laws. So if you move and you don't update your address, for instance, I mean, these are all violations. And so once you have a felony child support warrant, I mean, a felony is a very serious charge to overcome. And so even someone who otherwise has no criminal justice involvement, if they've been using and their addiction has been really taking over how they spend their money and what their lifestyle is, I've seen people come into treatment owing over $20,000 over even higher than that. And so these folks, you know, may or may not have employment prospects. Usually in this case, they don't have employment prospects at this time where they're able to come up with $20,000 to pay back money to the government. Yeah. And so we're able to help negotiate with the child support enforcement agency. There's uh, one agency that collaborates in this program throughout the state of Michigan, and they will work with people who are in acute recovery to help reduce additional fines and fees as long as that person agrees to some sort of a payment plan. And so we're able to clear out, help clear these warrants sometimes felony warrants for these parents so that they can get on the right track and start paying something that's realistic and affordable to catch up and, you know, start making payments. Some people, you know, they haven't paid anything in years because they, you know, weren't able with that lifestyle they had. And now they want to be on that path. But sometimes seeing an amount like, oh, well, I owe $22,000. That could be sobriety threatening, right? That could be extremely stressful to someone who's underemployed or who earns, you know, $11 an hour. Where are they going to come up with $22,000? And so we feel like we're, we're kind of helping them take that first step to get right with the government and feel like they're clearing up their issues. And this is like very supportive. I've heard from the individuals who've participated in this program. They say it's really supportive and emotionally they feel good about it. Like they're they're finally making things right so that they can move forward with a, a very different lifestyle. So I have a I have a, another question. So your study is ongoing. Correct. What I would love to know is like what it what have you gleaned from it so far? What have you learned from it so far? And what do you think are the most important takeaways that you got from seeing this work? One thing I've noticed sitting down, and I I do a lot of the patient enrollments myself, and I check in with my team when I'm not there to find out all the, you know, initial feedback. And we do take uh, clinical case notes as well, is people largely, almost entirely want to resolve their legal issues and want to be on what I would call an above the water path. Like a, a, they want to be on the path to being legal. They want to be on the path to see their children, to have employment that 
they're able to pay taxes. They don't want to be running from the government. And these may be people who have in the past literally ran from police. I mean, these are folks who previously lived a different lifestyle and they are now at a space where they're saying, I want help. I want to move forward. And so it's, it's been really heartening and I really very much value this feedback I get from people because it makes me feel like everything I'm doing is, is the right thing to do because people do want to make a change. And when I'm meeting with them, I'm at a point in their lives where they're ready to make a change and they don't know how. And so if it's as simple as showing them a website and saying, I hear you, I understand for instance, you know, you have this, this felony, you think you have this felony warrant and, you know, it's been really difficult for you. You haven't been able to work for the past year while you were, you know, living outdoors and, and not, not housed continuously. And I, I get it. And now you're here and I'm so happy you're here. And let's see if we can look this up, you know, do you, and then I will sit with them and work through the process of making that connection with the government so that they can move forward, for instance. And so, you know, people, the thing is, it's it's very humanizing and sitting with the clients and hearing them talk about, you know, wanting to make right with their family and go home and, and have the family happy for them to be there if they've been away for a while and really wanting to get back into the economy and really just do the right thing. And I think there's so much stigma surrounding addiction, particularly people who use drugs, but you know, also alcohol, Absolutely. alcoholism as well. There's so much stigma in the U.S. that it's really, really hidden. And the fact that we come into this intervention at the treatment centers, there's nothing hidden. Everyone there is there because of the fact that they, you know, are in substance use treatment. And so, you know, that we go in there where we are kind of like, we don't care. We, this is not to us. This is not an insurmountable hurdle. Like we are here because of the fact that you are asking for this treatment. That's great. And let us help you connect with public policy because, there are resources where we can help people get on the right path and they're ready to get on the right path in a lot of cases. Right. And, you know, very seldom do we find someone who says, you know what, I just don't want to deal with that. And they have the right to say that too. Of course it's, it's there. They don't have to participate. They don't have to work with us. If they say, you know what, I might have a legal issue, but I think I can count on one hand over the past two years when that's happened. We've worked with hundreds of people and almost no one has said, eh, I, don't ca- I don't care. Let's just roll the dice and, you know, let the cops come get me. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, almost no yeah. one says I want to, you know, be wanted by the cop. Like no one is saying anything like this. If they're saying maybe I'm not ready to deal with it, even, you know, it's less than one hand of people I can count who did not want to resolve their their legal issues and get right with the government and um, move on the right path. So, so yeah, my my big takeaway is it's it's very humanizing. I mean, these are individuals who have been really in a precarious situation often for some time that brought them to treatment, and 
they want to do the right thing. And so I think that we really need to put aside the stigmas and, and know that these are human beings and people who who want to yes. be part of the community, want to be part of our economy, and they want to be part of their families. And they just could use a little help because they don't have the resources that other people may have, whether that's a lawyer or whether that's, you know, paying for really extensive high-end treatment that may have substantial resources to get them in the right path, right? I mean, these are people who are on Medicaid or who do not have health insurance. And like you were saying earlier, sometimes just access to the information of what's going on in their own yeah. life. I mean, I, you know, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, and that just mirrors my own experience working in this field too most people really really want to contribute want to be a positive part of society want connection want something different but you know they may not have the resources and just the frustrating part like you were talking about is just sometimes getting the information they need to be able to resolve an issue absolutely that can almost become insurmountable and it's such a seems like such an easy thing but with all of the systems in place it just seems to block that stuff and then then there's all that stigma where yeah people are just judged and and dismissed before they even have an opportunity to to do something different agree and there's one other thing i've really i keep coming across over and over working with people at this early stage in recovery that i want to make sure that i say because it's so paramount to the situation is housing, housing, housing. I hear from people left and right, and they say, you know, they've been evicted, they've been homeless, they've experienced repeat stints with homelessness, couch surfing, just really not having a place to call home. And this is a, a very acute concern for people in early recovery, because if they have gotten clean and gotten on the right path, but they don't have any housing to go to, that is a very large sobriety threatening concern that they're facing, right? And so I think that from my perspective as as someone who is a scholar and someone who is in the you know public policy debate on the national scale, we need to focus when we're talking about working on America's addiction issues and working on the opioid crisis, we have to talk about housing and how we're going to connect people in early recovery, in reentry from incarceration. How are we going to connect them with housing? Because if, if people are getting clean and they're, re if they're receiving the clinical treatment that they receive, right, which this specific population is already engaged in the treatment, because we know there are lack there's a lack of enough treatment for everyone to go around, right? So that's an issue in itself. But for the people who've gotten the treatment and they've gotten to the point where they've started to recover from their addiction, if they are not able to remain housed, how is it expected that subsequent recovery and you know, abstaining or reducing substance use is, is going to be possible on any long-term scale. And so without addressing the housing issue and the broader, you know, American housing issues that we're facing as a nation with the eviction crisis, this is something that it's very concerning to me and I'm hearing it resonate. And these are people, again, who have children. These are, 
these are families who are going unhoused. And so there's, I think there's really a need for, on the national scale, some policy endeavors that are looking at housing very vulnerable populations. And even if you're, let's say, a a legislator who doesn't care about people who use drugs, right? You think about stigma and, oh, that's not my, you know, I don't worry. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about something else. And so I'm not going to spend any of my legislative time thinking about people who use drugs. Well, think about it from an economic standpoint of of how much does it cost? These are families who are on Medicaid. And how much does it cost as a nation for the care for all these individuals? And if you if you care about costs, then you have to care about housing these families as well. Yeah, it just would make more economic sense to provide some of these services in this way to help these people become uh, part of society in a way that they can contribute and feel feel good about it. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a whole huge, you're tackling such a huge social issue. I mean, this is just, I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking about it. There's, it's just massive. All of these issues of inequality and vulnerability and in our society that we have to look at. And so with this study, uh, as we kind of get to our time here, with this study, what are you finding and what are some of the outcomes that you're starting to see? And then I know you have another research study that another project that's coming. So I want to hear about that as well. But just with this project and this research, what are you finding? So one of the the biggest takeaways is, is that people want to get on the path to clear their backgrounds to move forward and hopefully using online resources will make that a less stigmatizing and less bureaucratic process that will be beneficial for those individuals and their family, for the community, as well as from the government side. Resolving criminal justice and civil justice issues is is always a good thing for the courts. And so why not try to do it as efficiently as possible. And we saw with COVID that accessing courts in person became very difficult, if not impossible. And so using online resources, particularly ones that are free, like in this case to the user, it's free to use these resources. This is a a no-brainer. It's really, it's a nonpartisan no-brainer. I mean, you you look at it and these are people who need assistance and we can't afford, uh, they can't afford attorneys and, and, and nobody's giving them an attorney. So why not clear these issues so that they can ac- better access housing and work so that they can stay on their path to recovery? And hopefully that will reduce recidivism in the future, right? Reduce incidents of them potentially becoming involved with the justice system later. And again, as I just mentioned, housing is a major issue. And so I think we need to tackle that. If we care about Medicaid spending and we care about poverty in America, we have to think about housing and and what that might look like for this population. And if we need to do some more evidence-based research on things like transitional housing as an option, for instance, that's something that I'm seeing used a lot in our community. And it seems to have a, a, a pretty good success rate in helping people stay on their path to recovery. And then uh, I do have another research project that's coming up somewhat related to this study. And I'm working on an invention with engineers in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And we are doing something that's going to hopefully improve health equity for individuals who are under government supervision. 
And that's going to help connect people with resources outside of the carceral state using software and hardware that improves upon what the government uses currently. And so that's that's coming down the pipeline and has a little bit of support from the National Institute on uh, Drug Abuse. And so looking forward to seeing what comes about with that as well. Wow, Megan, I am just in awe of your your work and your passion to do this work because it just sounds like you pour your whole heart into it to really help all these people and you you see the goodness in them. And I just love that. Usually at the end, as we get to the end of the podcast, I like to like ask one question. I'm going to ask it a little bit differently, but for maybe someone out there that has some ability to change these systems or take on these, these efficiencies, and you could tell them one thing and you'd want to say one thing to them, what would you want them to know? What would you want to say to them? I think one of the biggest issues with our, our justice system that makes things extremely difficult for people who lack resources, so people at the low end of the in- income spectrum and, and people who have barriers to accessing courts, whether that be a mobility issue, for instance, or a substance use disorder. So people who really have justice system issues but cannot access the courts because of their own limited access to resources, inability to pay for lawyers. I think the justice system could improve upon how they administer their practices by sharing data with each other and by having cohesive systems that talk to each other. So having civil justice and criminal systems that talk to each other and um, link up case files so that individuals don't have to go to, you know, eight different courts, for instance, for someone in recovery who may have been using for many years and have multiple issues outstanding. If the courts could talk to each other and not be so siloed and take advantage of software systems and and online systems that have you know, secure servers so that you can protect people's information, just so that you can more effectively serve the public and do so in a timely manner that's more conducive to efficiency and and public health benefits, uh, particularly for someone, for instance, with, you know, substance use issues that they can get on their feet if the, the justice system moves a little bit faster. Uh, thank you, Megan, so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast and and sharing all this and doing this work. I, I just think it's so it's just so important. Where can people find you and find more about what you're doing? Where can they go? Thanks, Dwayne. I have a website www.meganoneil.org. It's m e g h a n o n e i l dot o r g. I'm also going to be going over to Ohio State Drug Enforcement Policy Center. So I'll have an email starting there in a couple of weeks. For now, my email is Megan, M-E-G-H-A-N-O-N at umich.edu for University of Michigan. And I'd love to hear from people and hope to continue this discussion um, on the national scale in the academic and uh, community-based space. Thank you, Megan, so much for coming on and just sharing all that you're doing. Thanks, Dwayne. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for giving me this opportunity. 
All right. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So check them out there. You can get a link to Dr. O'Neill's study. So check it out. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you find it valuable, share it with a friend. And don't forget, you can join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast. Click join and also follow us on Instagram at Addicted Mind podcast. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.